Even though the consequences of prenatal alcohol exposure were first described more than 40 years ago, diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or FASD, remains a challenge. This is mainly due to the clinical requirements for a multidisciplinary evaluation of the patient. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with two authors of the recent FASD guideline published in CMAJ. Dr. Valerie Temple is a clinical psychologist at Surrey Place Centre in Toronto, and Dr. Christine Locke is a developmental paediatrician at Children's and Women's Health Centre of British Columbia with an academic appointment at UBC. This international collaborative and evidence-based guideline provides updated information for FASD diagnosis across the lifespan. How common is FASD? This is Dr. Temple speaking. And the exact prevalence of FASD in Canada really continues to be unknown. Now, there are some good estimates available. The number that's cited most often is 9 in a 1,000 live births, and that's for the whole spectrum of FASD. And that translates into roughly 1% of the population that's born with the disorder. Now, there are other estimates that place it in the range of 2 to 5% as well, and it really depends a lot on who you're asking and where you're looking. There are certainly larger rates in some special populations like children in care or prison populations. But the 1% number is used quite often by places like Public Health Agency of Canada as the standard rate for the population. This is Dr. Locke speaking. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is recognized as a leading cause of non-genetic developmental disability in the Western world. Um, it occurs approximately uh, 2 to 5% of uh, all live births and uh, has been seen in all parts of the world. Although we now recognize uh, FASD as a spectrum, it was initially described over 40 years ago and we were looking uh, for the tip of the iceberg, uh, children who are most uh, recognized to be affected by alcohol. These 40 years of practice and research has helped us understand and expand our ability to recognize the individuals who are affected by prenatal alcohol exposure. The last Canadian guideline on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder was published in 2005 in CMAJ. What are some highlights of new evidence that has emerged since then? Uh, since uh, 2005, when we published the FASD guidelines, there have been thousands of basic science uh, peer-reviewed articles uh, that recognize the pervasiveness of alcohol's effect on brain development and uh, that we are looking at uh, a diffuse brain injury profile and that alcohol does not just affect the brain but can affect other aspects including uh, uh, fetal growth, the occurrence of other birth defects, and that most important there may be interventions that may mitigate alcohol's effects, including uh, nutritional interventions, uh, as well as the importance of, of nurture, that, uh, that environment very much influences the impact. There's been a lot of new evidence in the area in the last 10 years. I don't think it's, it's an exaggeration to say that research has really exploded. There's been advances in genetics and epigenetics, cognitive profiles, and that's just to name a few. But the two areas that I think are really important for the guidelines to focus on are the issue of mental health problems uh, and growth deficits. So it's been long recognized 
that FASD is very strongly associated with mental health problems. Problems like anxiety, depression, but some of the major mental health problems too, like bipolar or personality disorders. Rates are really high. Uh, in some studies, they're citing up to 80 to 90% of people have a mental health diagnosis uh, by the time they reach adulthood with a diagnosis of FASD. But previously, it was believed that these problems were secondary to FASD. That is to say, they came after. And we even called them secondary disabilities. But as a result of some new research, uh, new animal models of FASD, we've been able to show that alcohol is actually more primary in the development of these problems. So what we found is that prenatal alcohol exposure can lead to greater activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the HPA axis, and this can result in hyperreactivity to stressors. So things like affective instability and frequent mental health problems found in FASD are now believed to actually be more primary characteristics of the disorder. Having that information really led us to think about mental health problems differently when we wrote up the new guidelines. And in fact, we added affect regulation and mental health problems as one of the 10 areas to be investigated when you're looking for a diagnosis. Another area of research that was really important in the development of the revised guidelines were studies about growth deficits. In the 2005 guidelines, low birth weight or growth deficits were specifically included as a diagnostic criteria for FAS or the full syndrome. But more recent research has found that growth deficits are actually not as common as we initially believed. And on top of that, they're clearly not specific to FASD. They occur in lots of different disorders. So for these reasons, growth deficits were removed as a criteria for diagnosis in the new guidelines. Now, having said that, of course, growth deficits are very important. And if they are present, they should be noted, but they don't contribute to the diagnosis anymore. I probably should add that concurrent with this has also been a great deal of research that has been done to support women uh, and the, to recognize women who are at higher risk of uh, alcohol exposure uh, in pregnancy and also to look at the epidemiology of, of drinking in general and our concerns about binge drinking in the population of uh, young women who uh, may not be pregnancy planners but may be at risk for unplanned pregnancy and the effect of alcohol. Tell us how the Guideline Steering Committee was formed and just briefly how the guideline was developed. The new guidelines were funded by Public Health Agency of Canada and really directed by CanFASD. CanFASD is the National FASD Research Network. So back in 2013, CanFASD kind of started the process by sending out a survey to all the existing FASD diagnostic centres in Canada. And the purpose of that was to get feedback, recommendations, information from all the different clinics across the, the country. We wanted to find out if people were using the old guidelines, what problems they were having with it, and any revisions they had. So the steering committee was brought together after that, and it was meant to represent different regions of the country as well as different experts in the area. And the steering committee had 14 members, uh, three pediatricians, clinical geneticists, four psychologists, three researchers, a social worker, a clinic coordinator, and a parent of a person with FASD. So after the steering committee was formed and the survey had been completed, the researchers did a comprehensive literature review of 
information from about 2005 to 2015. And we took all that information from the surveys, from the literature review, and we convened a two-day workshop in Alberta. And what happened at the workshop was we invited over 50 experts in the area from across Canada and the U.S., brought them all together. We shared the survey results and the literature review and asked them their thoughts and feelings about diagnosis and where they thought things should go. And after that, we took the information from all the different sources, divided among the steering committee and uh, to each content expert, and then we went on to draft the guidelines, which, of course, were sent to CMAJ for review. Dr. Locke, let's start with screening. Should all pregnant women be screened for alcohol use disorders? Primary health providers should ask all women about alcohol use. And uh, and so that, that means asking me, you, all women. And we should not only conf- uh, uh, confine this to times of pregnancy or postpartum, but to, to be asking young women uh, and providing uh, information and support. Uh, this is the role of the primary health uh, provider to, uh, to, to ask, advise, and refer. Alcohol use disorders are treatable. High-risk drinking has uh, more consequences than only the consequences of use in pregnancy, and, uh, and that interventions do work. Dr. Temple, who should be part of the diagnostic team? Well, we continue to recommend a multidisciplinary team, and this is really important in order to get an accurate and comprehensive diagnosis, but also to get good recommendations and a strong support plan. Now, the core members of the team are going to vary depending on the age of the person being evaluated, and also, of course, the resources in your community. The team will typically contain a clinic coordinator, uh, some sort of medical professional, and one or more individuals doing functional assessment. So the medical professional could be a pediatrician, but it also could be a physician, clinical geneticist, even a nurse practitioner. The functional assessment is typically done by an occupational therapist, a psychologist, or a speech pathologist, or some combination of those professionals. But regardless to which professionals are included in the team, it's really important that whoever is doing diagnosis is appropriately trained. So one of the ways that CANFASD is promoting the uptake of the new guidelines is that we're going to be launching a new online course uh, on the new guidelines in the new year, in early 2016. And this will be for the entire uh, multidisciplinary team. The course will be available for all of the team members to take, and it will have four to six modules that will include information about how to apply the new guidelines, different case studies, ethical considerations, and the different roles of the team members. What medical, facial, and neurodevelopmental features should diagnosing healthcare professionals be looking for? Primary health providers and specialists will have uh, patients who have prenatal alcohol exposure in their practice. And um, first, there should be an awareness to look uh, and listen uh, to uh, the family or the individual about concerns that, that have effects in three broad domains, the first being in the learning and behavior or neurocognitive domain. The second would be in self-regulation, and that would be in affect regulation, in attention, uh, in mood. And the third would be in, in, in the area of a, the adaptive domain. So the 
ability to carry on with the activities of daily living. I think that it's been nicely outlined in the new DSM-5 and would be helpful for primary health providers to make themselves aware of these three broad uh, super domains that may show this triad of presentation of neurocognitive, self-regulatory, um, and adaptive difficulties. For those who practice more with kids with learning differences, it is recognizing that there may be other birth defects, uh, the, the most common being microcephaly, a small head circumference, uh, or growth differences. Uh, these differences are relevant, but they're not required for the diagnosis. But if present, they may be markers of you know, different growth or different, uh, different face may indicate different developmental function. And then lastly, and we'll talk about in more detail, when you have an index of suspicion, this is a time for referral. A child who is not meeting milestones uh, and the, there's evidence of more diffuse differences, uh, this is a child who needs referral and early intervention support regardless of the etiology, whether it's alcohol, it's genetic, or environmental. Um, as primary health providers should be making referrals for early intervention as early as possible. To make a diagnosis of FASD, what criteria must be met? Uh, first, there should be the strong index of suspicion of prenatal alcohol exposure. And in that situation, we are not uh, looking uh, for hearsay, but for evidence that there has been alcohol-related morbidity, that, that there has been a de- direct disclosure or disclosure by family members, or in circumstances where the mother isn't present, uh, that in this situation we can rely on the three sentinel facial features. Uh, and that moves me into the second piece. Uh, after prenatal alcohol exposure, we do look for sentinel uh, physical findings or what we would call dysmorphia, the, the triad of uh, facial features, of short palpable fissures, of long flattened philtrum and thin upper lip have been present since the first description of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in the early 1970s, and these features have been found to be 95% predictive of prenatal alcohol exposure. And then, again, it isn't the physical features that are the important reason for referral, but it's the developmental concern. And in the areas of developmental concern, we look at multiple domains to, to be evidence of diffuse brain injury, And those domains simply uh, said would be problems with learning new concepts, remembering, uh, difficulty with language, language acquisition, with higher order language, uh, with executive functions, and with affect mood regulation. The common term, I think, is, is really that individuals with FASD have trouble making choices. And it's in that area where we see the impact of executive function, and language and memory influencing an individual's ability to navigate the school system, to navigate uh, work and, uh, and living independently in the community. And I would add that there's a really handy flowchart in your guideline that is useful in understanding the mechanism of making a diagnosis. Absolutely. I think that, that what we've worked on in these guidelines is a, a not a simplified, but a, but a more clear guideline to making a diagnosis, and, and one can look at it in two ways, FASD dysmorphic, FASD non-dysmorphic. Uh, if there is evidence for the classic sentinel facial features, an individual with uh, FASD can receive the diagnosis 
without confirmation of prenatal alcohol exposure, but that is the only circumstance. And then uh, for the individuals who do have a, a history of prenatal alcohol exposure, uh, this requires then referral to a multidisciplinary team where those areas of diffuse uh, and severe brain injury can be better explained. And, and the reason for making this diagnosis is, is not to label an individual, but to actually provide a blueprint for support for their learning, for their employment, for their ability to live in community settings. What advice would you give to primary care physicians who may see undiagnosed cases of FASD or perhaps are involved in their ongoing care? Well, first, the primary health provider is the medical home. And I think that the trust and relationship uh, that is key to that medical home is the foundation of, of making a referral. And, uh, and the primary health provider isn't expected to be an expert in FASD, but they do know more about the social uh, circumstances and the resources and strengths that may be there to mitigate against ongoing prenatal alcohol use. If uh, if that's an issue in the family, uh, we recognize that pregnant women never drink alone. Uh, there may be issues uh, related to other family members or, or partners with substance use issues, intimate partner violence issues around the social determinants of health, around food insecurity, housing, exclusion. All of these things need to be considered, and the primary health provider is the person who who knows the family best and can help the family through the diagnostic process and be there at the end to help with the recommendations uh, at the school level, the community level, um, and for advocating for change. To add to what Dr. Locke has said, we believe that there are many, many undiagnosed cases of FASD out there in the world. This is essentially an invisible disability. And by that, I mean that the cognitive limitations are often not well understood or well identified. It truly is a developmental disability, but it's not like Down syndrome where there's obvious things to see to show that the individual has challenges. So in your everyday practice, if you see people who are faltering in their lives, who are having challenges at school or can't hold down a job, maybe early addiction problems, I hope that primary care providers will consider a possibility of FASD diagnosis. So along with that thought, I hope that primary care providers will consider referring for diagnosis, even if they don't believe that there are specific resources in their community to help for FASD afterwards. Because FASD is an invisible disability, it's often the case that the limitations are misunderstood by the people around the individual. They can be understood as willfully bad behavior or a lack of motivation and this belief can lead to a lot of frustration and stress for the individual and their family. So understanding that problematic behavior or failure to succeed might be the result of a disability as opposed to bad behavior can go a long way to improving life for a person with FASD. Expectations can be altered, blame can be put aside, and improvement in quality of life can be quite immense. So I hope that primary care providers won't ignore the possibility of a diagnosis because they don't see concrete supports at the end of the line. Because truly the benefit of knowledge and understanding that comes from a diagnosis can be really life-altering. Thank you. Thanks. I've been speaking with Dr. Valerie Temple, clinical psychologist at Surrey Place Centre in Toronto. 
and Dr. Christine Locke, a developmental pediatrician at Children's and Women's Health Centre of British Columbia. To read the full guideline on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder diagnosis across the lifespan, visit cmaj.ca.